Good morning. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode um, of the Retail Growth Series. Now, who I have on this morning is the amazing Tim Radley. Um, Tim is an international retail specialist, and he's author of Meaning in the Retail Madness. Um, he's CEO of VM Unleashed and Shop of the Future expert. Um, he's an international retail consultant based near London. And um, he set up um, VM Unleashed in 2007. And he specializes in um, world-class customer experiences in physical and digital stores. Um, he injects retail disruption and deliver, delivers shop of the future experiences um, through his expertise. He's worked with so many brands um, internationally. Um, and to name a few of them, Primark, Walgreens, Boots, and there's way more there. Um, there's so many to list. So um, he's a lot of experience across the board in so many different various sectors. His new book, which we're going to speak about today, Meaning in the Retail Madness, um, is written around these unprecedented times in retail. And he talks about different challenges and um, different channels as well and touch points um, between the supply chains and right through that process. Um, he was speaking before we came on earlier. He does mentoring as well and he does um, lecturing as well. So definitely some that has a lot of experience in the industry and I'm really looking forward to this chat to him because I think he has a unique um, perspective um, of retail and having been on this journey for so many years I know that he'll have a different way of looking at it. Um, his book um, which was published in September 2021 is on Amazon um, so definitely check it out and um, Tim is also on LinkedIn so if you want to connect with Tim um, he's on LinkedIn I'll post all the social media channels as well and um, underneath this so you can connect with him as well there and yeah I'm really looking forward to this chat this morning with Tim and um, really interesting I came across Tim myself on LinkedIn and um, he's really amazing interesting articles and um, so definitely check him out and um, there'll be something there that you'll definitely pick up something and learn something from so thank you Tim for coming on this morning and um, I really appreciate it no it's my pre uh, pleasure Louise yeah I hope I can uh, live up to that introduction but um, yeah, it's uh, nice to be here and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll have a good discussion and uh, see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose, Tim, where, I suppose what motivated you to move into the, the area that you're in currently within the retail space? So what kind of what I suppose what kind of motivated you a little bit or what kind of got you going to want to do what you're doing right now? Um, well, originally I came from a uh, kind of more creative background so well actually I studied chemistry and then I studied uh, design so I kind of got the uh, the analytic side and the kind of creative side but it was by chance I, I my first job with, was with a retail consultancy in London called Management Horizons so I went in there and I was basically um, looking at things like visual merchandising visual communication initially and then into store design and then realizing really quickly that the creativity, if it's going to work, it's got to be supported by all the merchandising, the analytics, et cetera. So over the years, I've gone back through, if you like, the whole process. So now I kind of work and I advise on, you know, kind of larger strategies. I work on the merchandising, the assortment structure. Um, I work on with the teams who work in the shops and then finally into the shops. Um, 
I think that if you're going to have a, a kind of successful shop, it's 25% about the things which are obvious, shop design, VM, customer service people. But 75% is going to be determined by those other things down the supply chain, the other things down the kind of strategy of the business. So I suppose through curiosity, but then actually through kind of just what happened working with businesses on a wider scale, I kind of involved in all of it now. Which is good. And I think that's how retailers, you know, one of the big problems that you always hear is that retailers work in silos. Yeah. And particularly the larger ones do. And it is a, a really big problem. Um, people who are designing product, they're buying product, they never even see it in the, sh- in the shop. By the time it arrives in the shop, they've moved on to the next season. You've got people in the shop who don't have a channel of communication back up into the business. Um, it is, excuse me, it is getting better, but it is still, you know, a problem. And so if you like my ideal project, and I work in this way quite a few times, is to have an entity to work on. So a new shop or existing shops that you're going to improve, but to work with the team from across the business. So you've got people in there from marketing, you've got the buyers, the merchandisers, you've got uh, HR people in there. Uh, training you've got technology you know all of those elements together is what's going to come together to to deliver a great shop which in all reality is not usually so difficult but actually to keep it going as a good shop after it's opened you know week after week month after month you know that's that's another challenge in itself so that's kind of the way my journey's gone, but I think it does kind of reflect, you know, the way that retail should go now, the way that organisations should be structured and the kind of collaboration and cooperation, you know, that's required now to, to deliver good retail. Yeah, I think it's really interesting there you touched on working in silos and I think I would, I would, where I would really see that a lot would be around the, um, when we look at building a certain culture, so we bring in, you know, brand values, behavioral values, and you would see it um, in marketing, but then we probably wouldn't see it in, in other bits. And we, we see maybe bits of it every now and then across different areas, but we mm. don't see the impact of that on a day to day basis. So it, it's not brought in um it's not not brought in daily it's brought in kind of ad hoc a little bit at times so touching on what you said there um having those kind of work in unity um and you do see that I think sometimes and and again it goes back to that structure piece I think as well where you see it in the smaller businesses where they have their hand in the pulse all the time and obviously because their margins and everything you know everything is they have to be so super cost effective that mm. they are really monitoring and measuring that in a, in a, in a really um, and that's where probably there's not as many layers to those organizations that they can do that. Um, and touching on what you said there, I think, do you think for the larger scale organizations, do you think that the fact that there is a lot of layers there or do you think that it's a communicational thing that, that, that they're working in those kind of silos as such? Um, I think it's 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 historical. It's the way if you look at like the if you look at the history of retail, 
the, the important thing is kind of the supply and the demand balance. Mm. And if you go back, um, you had um, more demand than supply. Mm. So the really important thing to do was just to get product, get good product, build some shops, get the product in the shops, mm. and you would make money. And a lot of the big retailers in America you know, huge population, huge demand, I suppose, 1950s, 60s and onwards. So it's no surprise that the really important parts of the business were the people who went out, did the deals, got the product, the people who opened shops, because if you did that well, then you're going to make money. And so the process was very linear as well. You know, get your product, put it in your shops, sell it. And also that was probably the order of importance, the order of kind of priority. So if you come in any way from that kind of background, it is difficult now to change that. Mm. And over the years, the softer elements, the people have become more and more important, the brand, because now we live in everywhere in saturated markets. So the supply is more than the demand. So you've got to be really good now to survive and to flourish and it's not just a matter of going and getting product from you know china or elsewhere putting it in shops because it still won't mean that you're going to make money so if you take a new business then it's different and it's more appropriate to now and usually the great thing about small businesses is that they weren't intended always to be retail businesses somebody with a passion uh, interior design fashion um, sport you know extreme sport etc that's their passion products come from that ideas come from that and then that develops into an assortment the internet of course is just unbelievable because it gives now the easiest possibility to get your brand, your passion, your idea, your product out to customers. Never possible, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. And so um, this passion is the key. And I think if you're building with that, people who join the business, they share that passion. You choose because of their enthusiasm as well as their capability to add something to the business, you know, whatever function that happens to be. So in many ways, it's difficult for big established businesses to develop that passion, which is so important because it came from a very operational, analytical, commercial uh, perspective, which, of course, every business still has to. So, you know, as we were, we were talking about earlier, you really have to inject this passion and this collaboration into the older structures, but into the new entrepreneurial businesses, you need then to develop the structure and you do need to develop organization. Mm-hmm. So I think I've seen there's a good cross fertilization of enlightened businesses mm-hmm. where the older businesses can bring in uh, younger, new people. I shouldn't say younger, just people with a different perspective who can add that kind of that element of thinking in a different way. I think all traditional businesses should have an innovation director. Mm. Uh, And many do with different names. 
so mm -hmm. that it helps to bring in a different way of working, uh, a different change. Mm -hmm. And the other element I think really important is, is the leadership. In, in established businesses, there is a lot of passion, a lot of ideas lower down the business, but it does need that enlightened view, that passion at the top of a business to really get that to work and flow throughout. It, I've seen a lot of times, it, it's a real shame to see it, but if you've got that block at the top of a business, there's only ultimately so far that, that you can go. Yeah. So um, you need that passion, you need that structure, you need the right balance. Um, and I think also the big, big thing for all these businesses is you need to put um, data, you need to put the customer right in the middle of the process. So if you look at a traditional um, structure of a retail business, it's very hierarchical in steps. And you've yeah. got the boss, you've got the bosses of the different areas, very strong buying group, very strong selling group. But it goes from top to bottom. And once they get so far down, they're separate. But if you put the customer absolutely bang in the middle and you put all types of intelligence, product intelligence, retail intelligence, customer intelligence, market intelligence in the middle. Mm -hmm. And then that flows out to all the different departments, including the buy-in. So you buy what people want. You don't buy what you can buy. Um, so you literally turn in a traditional business like a, a kind of a donut inside out. So you don't begin with the product at the center and then your shops and then your customer. You begin with the customer, the business, and then whichever way you want to get it to the customer, physical shops, e-commerce, uh, et cetera. So yeah. that's a big thing to take a, a, you know, an established business and literally turn it inside out. Um, so it's not easy. But um, that passion and people and technology, I think, are the key elements. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting and um, listening to what you said there, because when you touched on what what the buyers are buying, that they're they're putting that customer in that in that, you know, in that journey piece, you know, you're putting them in the middle of that whole hierarchy structure. And I can totally relate to that. Um, and what's really interesting is, is that um, I'll just give you a little bit of a story. So I was working in Next at the time and um, we have we had an in-store um, ordering service. So this is I'm going back to 2009. So a lot of retailers didn't have that set up in their business in 2009, especially in Ireland. They wouldn't have had the in-store ordering service that, that Next had. And what was and this this goes back to again um what you said there is is touching base with people that are on the shop floor that actually know the customers better than the buyers do so when we look at the analytics and the data this will give you a really good example of how the data doesn't really reflect what that consumer needs coming in the door so we um we had a uh, a fertility clinic open uh, one of the biggest um on on the west of Ireland and it was maybe two miles from the next where I was working in okay 
Now, we had a lot of women coming in buying maternity wear, okay? And um, we were we were doing, we were ordering in store um, and it was getting delivered to the store. Now, that wasn't going into your store sales. That was going into your, um, your, your online sales because we were buying it from the warehouse, okay? So it was a separate separate platform that we we're getting it from so it wasn't coming up on those reports but I knew that they were only coming in because we were actually seeing why that was happening from the fitting room and because of this clinic so what we decided to was we were pushing those sales and I had to have conversations every week with that head buyer where I said if you actually sent me in and um, you know one one size in that one style in that maternity pants you know two basics a black and, and a blue pair of jeans they will sell you will literally make it so through pushing and pushing and this took maybe six eight weeks longer we ended up just just to fast forward after six months that that store that had no grading on that maternity department we were graded um a b grade store and just to put that into perspective an a grade store would have been the biggest one of the biggest stores say and next would have had so we, we got a B grade and we weren't a B grade department. We were a C to a D grade department. But that particular maternity department grew, grew mm-hmm. in the sense that we got in. I, I got his range with two pairs of jeans. We end up having a full collection and an actual department with it in it. Now, that only came about because I knew if I got it in, I would have made that money. And I knew if I kept pushing and pushing the buyers to get that in, it would have happened. But if the buyers were reading the reports, all they would have seen is that, you know, it wouldn't have shown up in their sales. You know, it would have showed it gone into the other category. So, you know, sometimes it, it's we can look at the data from a buying perspective. I worked with another brand, Mothercare, and we were doing really well in our clothing department, but we could only sell what we have. OK, so you're mm-hmm. never going to see that increase because you're only getting in a certain amount of stock. But that's where if you have if the buyer has that relationship with that department, that department person can say, if you send me in an additional 10 lines, whatever that is, and an additional thousand euro worth of stock. I will actually you'll see that increase or if you want to just even give me 500 euro extra worth of stock and I'll see how I can potentialize off that and and, and playing it that way and what ended up happening was again we had to change the whole store layout we had to decrease the um, early learning center toy area and we increased our clothing area what that actually attributed to was an 80% increase in store sales because Mm. that particular store and that particular region area the customer wanted something different than another region. What we sometimes do is when we have a collective of stores, we seem to range them all with the same thing. And we're just looking for those differences. The thing is, we're never going to have those differences if we don't if we don't talk to those people on the ground and see, well, actually, we're not giving that customer what they need because we're giving them all the same thing. So I think it's having that approach and what you said, the innovation piece. And I think that is so, so important. And something like that, I can see, would work so well in that sector. And I spoke to someone quite recently and they said that, um, that there was this program called reverse mentoring. So what they'd done, and it was a little bit what you talked about earlier is, um, I was speaking about the Gen Z workforce there recently, um, and and they grew up in a very different time than I would have. I'm a millennial um, generation, and I didn't grow up with an iPad in my hand. You know, we got our first computer at home in like, was it 2000? 
and my dad got a computer in the house and it was really you know big huge boxy yolk cream thing um but the kids now are growing up with ipads in their hands they're maybe four years of age they're watching their peppa pig they're playing on the ipads and so it's very different and what they were saying was they were looking at putting a, a Gen Z um, person and pairing them with someone at a senior level. So that could be at a director level. Um, that's a different generation. And when they say reverse mentoring, so that director has a certain level of knowledge and experience, but maybe that Gen Zer has maybe the, um, the social media piece. Maybe they have the different way of looking at things. So they're mentoring that maybe that director, that CEO on maybe that aspect of a business. Um, and then the CEO is, is mentoring them on another aspect. So it's a give and take relationship. It's not just a mentoring, but they're, 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 they're mentoring each other almost in that thing. And I just thought it was really innovative to hear something like that happening. And it just touches on what you said there. Um, touching yeah, on, sorry. Sorry, Luz. Yeah. I mean, um, there's two kind of pyramids traditional pyramid you know in that structure is the one which kind of dictates or passes information down from top to bottom but you need the opposite which is a little bit like you're you're saying there and it's a listening hierarchy and the listening hierarchy needs to go the opposite way so you have all these people people above listen and then ultimately it should get you know to the top so so that's very important in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, I've been in shops where, you know, new shops where deliveries have come in, the staff open the boxes, there's a silence because they look at what's been bought and, you know, they know instantly what's going to sell, what's not going to sell. So I agree completely. This is a huge, it's a huge opportunity to take this knowledge and skill down at the uh, the shop level and build it into the process. So if we go back to this donut with like the information in the middle, um, the risk again is that that donut, even though it is focused on the customer, it's very distant from the customer. And I think traditionally you have two kinds of, if you like, insight. You've got um, consumer and that word consumer is very important because I think that depersonalized people. So the consumer is statistics, it's data, it's what happens in the market. Okay, that's useful at one level. You then have like customer. So that's better. We're talking about customers now, you know, and the data that we have through loyalty programs, CRM, we do learn a lot about the customer and at an individual level. But both of those together will tell you, again, as you were saying, it tells you what will ha what is happening. And of course, like you said, you will only sell what you're given to sell and you will only kind of learn, you know, the data about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And where I think the shop comes in and where you need this kind of listening funnel from the shop back into the buying and merchandising process is that it will tell you what could happen. It yeah. would tell you what could happen if you had the right product. It would tell you what could happen if you had a better store environment. It would tell you what could happen if your sizing was better, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so this third element, which comes from the shop um, and it's personal, um, that's the third element, which um, 
it will improve the process of buying and shop design and everything else, but it will also add a huge amount of value when it's recognized up the business. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a two-way appreciation and hopefully more investment going back down onto the shop floor because they can see the value. They're not just people taking money at a till, they're feeding back up into the process. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's a kind of mutual beneficial process. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly listening to the people in the shop. And there's another element which I, I found as well, which is rather sad, and it doesn't just happen in retail. But if you're good at a shop level, as a, a colleague, as assistant manager, a manager, the route to um, your career, as seen by many businesses and retailers, is you get promoted up and away. You get promoted and land in maybe a regional manager's job, but maybe you end up in a head office. And in fact, you're a person that really thrives. You really benefit the business down in the shop. But if you want to increase your your you know, your money and your benefits and your life, ultimately, you have to go up into the head office. So you lose all those skills yeah. when they're brought up into head office. The people are not always so happy. So as part of this whole process is to keep people where they are their most value, but award, reward them there. And yeah. you will get. But again, it comes to this wider mentality that the people in the shop are at the bottom in many ways. So why would we pay them this much money? Because they work in the shop. Well, because we've actually now got channels where, OK, they work in the shop, but they benefit the business really high up the chain. So, I mean, it's fast, all this area of what you do with people, how you link them together, how you get the value from them. Um, is, is such an opportunity. Um, and I think it's one of the big areas, hopefully post-pandemic as well, where there has been a bit of an enlightenment from head office about the value of people inside the shops that, you know, that can just go further and further. Mm, I think that's really, it's, it's, it's really important. And it's something that I, I'm really passionate about, Tim, because I, I, anywhere I worked, I, I think it's really important to empower people and to get buy-in from people. And when I say buy-in, not coercive buy-in, I mean buy-in where they actually feel that they're part of that process. That So I, I worked with a brand before, the Kilkenny Group and in Ireland. And what I done when I went into that store was we, I looked at, okay, we have a lot of amazing experienced people in this business. They've been in here for so many years. They had so many amazing ideas and they had so much knowledge, more knowledge than I ever would have had. And I went in there as a manager, but it wasn't my job to go in and, and, and know more than them. It was my job to go in and really, um, you know, unleash what the, I knew they had. So what I done was I, I was one of the first stores that started it. I decided to go to um, the senior the senior managers and say to them, can we get them involved in the buying process? And before they'd never heard of this. So we would have quarterly visits from the buyer from the buyers where we would talk about products that performed well and products that maybe we could bring into the business and trial out with different suppliers. 
But I said, there's no point in me being in these meetings because I'm not on that department. You know, I'm not on it every day. I don't see that consumer every day. And I manage in really three or four departments. So I, I just don't have that touch point the same way they do. And I, I won't add value to this conversation the same way they did. So mm. we brought them into that meeting. They sat in the meeting. And they gave really, really interesting feedback on on the issues the consumer was having with the products that we were arranging at the moment. And they were really moving the the product range to quite a different consumer. Uh, And they were saying that consumer isn't going to buy that. Um, and and where that that buyer was taking that risk because they were looking at the group as a collective but when we look at the group as a collective if you have two or three very high turnover stores that's where the data is going to it's, it's, it's going to nearly predict that you buy into a certain range because we're looking at the monetary value. So we said, you know what, even though it's, it, we don't make that much money as that other higher performing store, you know, we make this much. There's more potential if we actually go a different route with this. So that's where the, the, it was really tailoring um, that approach um, on that location where it was based in that region, as opposed to looking at all of the regions collectively and going, well, it's performing at this average. Average and and we know if we add in maybe 20 more percent we know that we're going to get that increase whereas if we looked at maybe an individual basis and um, we would potentialize because maybe there's a product that we're not looking for that's in a particular store that's overperforming by 40 percent and if we put the money into that one that we're going to get a bigger return on investment so um I do really believe that approach that you touched on there Tim is really it, it, and I've seen it. I've seen it myself with my own eyes, the, mm. the effects it makes on a business and it increases sales. We mm. made key decisions around um, I was working on a de- pottery department and they we could see there was we could see the increase in sales and artwork. But again, it was being it was it was only getting to a certain level so we decided why don't we try it for four to six weeks and increase in that department what ended up happening was the sales increased by 150 percent because you're really strategic and what to put in but we actually got the person that's on that department two people that are on that department 80 hours a week they had the they had obviously input into what we were putting out because they knew that consumer and that loyalty base and um, so it was really really good and I just think that's something that definitely if, if we implement it even on a smaller scale in some businesses I think we would definitely see a return on investment and um, from that perspective from people being involved so again it gets them involved and going back to what you said there those people moving them into a buying department they, they wouldn't have wanted to go into a buying department, but we could get them involved in the buying process. And through that then, um, I actually, we, we looked at giving the team increases in salary. So I said, well, if they're getting involved now in, in the buyer, in the buyer's um, decision-making, well, then that adds, then they're doing more outside of their role, outside of their job specs. So now we can actually look to give them more money because they're actually now being involved in another area of the business. And if we can see the investment and, and the return we're getting in that, from an increase in sales that's another reason to give them a little bit more money so you know there's there's ways and means around it I think if we're innovative like you said and we're thinking more instead of that triangular and we're going up and um, you know uh, that we're, we're flipping that over a little bit and looking at different ways around that absolutely and I think um if you think of the physical shop, I mean, this also links, you know, there's a lot of uh, obviously news out there about the future of the high street, 
um, how shop physical shops will survive. Um, I, for me, the shops that are going to survive, which are going to be in the high street, are what I would call local destination stores. Mm. And it doesn't matter the origins of these stores. It makes me sound as I'm talking about independence, but not necessarily. These could be big chains, international chains, national chains. They could be independent shops. But irrespective of what their origin is, they are part of the local community they're part of the local economy which is the people who are in that town or in that city and so a big part of them being this local destination is of course the people because it's not just the people's role inside that shop and as we've just been speaking you know how they interact through the hierarchy of the business but how they involved outside that shop as well so there are people from that community, ideally, but not necessarily, but they interact. I mean, it's going back. There's a lot of the future promise in the history. Yeah. And actually creating this kind of local space with people who interact inside the shop and outside the shop, irrespective, as I say, of the actual type of business, will create this local destination um, and this involvement so that you know, we move away also from this mentality of people competing against each other within a destination, a shopping centre or a town or a high street. They are all in it together mm. and they're competing against other de similar destinations. Mm. So, again, it's another mentality that's really important to change um, and where within a, a larger business, the people who work in the shop, the shop manager, have an important role to play. Is not just alerting about product, but actually alerting about opportunities to really make that store sell the best it possibly can because it's engaged, you know, with that community. And it could be ultimately the retailer is involved in community programs, social programs. You know, they're sponsoring flowers on roundabouts, which you see quite often. They're contributing to the Christmas lights. They're lobbying for uh, better parking or lower parking prices, better infrastructure in the town, that they're part of that process. And I, I kind of talk about this in the book. Ultimately, it's this shift from uh, economies of scale to the scale of economies. So economies of scale is where you make your money in the buying process. These huge volumes of product that you buy uh, elsewhere in the world for uh, a tiny cost. And then you try and sell as much as you possibly can. You won't sell anywhere near all of it. Um, but that's how you make your money. The money comes from the buying process. Mm. If you look at the um, scale of economies, i.e. the potential for your shops in physical places to make money and you invest in that, which includes the people, but all those other initiatives we just talked about, you can maximise the sales that each shop can make. And that's making your money from selling, which really has to be retail. And that's kind of going back to an old idea. But you make the money as a retailer from being a retailer, from being a seller of product rather than just in your buying process. Um, so 
as I suppose I was talking right at the beginning, everything is linked. So, mm -hmm. you know, people in a business, in that case, they're working right through the business, but they're also working out with the customer as well. And it, it all comes together. Um, I just want to point you were making about um, allocation of product you were talking a, a lot about then, which is, you know, is hugely important. And that's where people in the shop can help with what you might be able to sell rather than what we're selling at the moment. But in the actual possibility in terms of what was bought, there's a, a really nice story, which is, is true. I won't name who it is, but uh, one of the most important probably people who's ever worked in retail in this uh, country, who was involved in one of your companies next and went on to work with several other um, key brands. A nice story. He was uh, head of the whole business and it was a fashion business and he had a new head of children's wear who came to him with this new assortment that she kind of uh, developed and she showed it to him and it was it looked great you know it kind of hit all the all the visual buttons and everything she was really pleased with it and he said to her so what do the customers think and she said well they love it won't they you know just look at this look at that it's really nice he said they love it he said okay he said it looks nice to me as well he said but I am a you know 50 60 year old man um, I don't have children at the moment. Uh, I'm very wealthy. Uh, we sell to lower income families. I don't know if they'll buy it. And you are a well-paid young executive. You don't have children. Um, it looks nice, but how do you know? So go away, take the product, show it to the customer, get some focus groups, see what they say about it, and then come back. And so she did. And as it happened, she was right. And what he thought was right. The customer did like it. But it's the, the main thing for me in that is that he was a guru. He had been so successful, but he didn't have, if you like, the arrogance, for want of a better word, to think that he knew that yeah. he knew that that was going to sell. And only when he heard it from the customer's mouth did, you know, did he kind of uh, believe and he signed it, the whole thing off? So, again, it's ju that's just a, you know, I've heard a, there's a, a nice expression, I suppose. It's called, it says a fish rots from the head. And apparently this is true biologically of a fish. But I think it actually does apply very well to businesses. comes back to that leadership. You know, they're no better than people who work on the shop floor, but yeah. they have a different wisdom. But everybody through that chain needs their own wisdom and they need an appreciation of the value that everybody brings up and down that chain. You know, and people who are on the shop floor who criticize people at the top, mm. that's fine. But make sure you know the people at the top because it's not easy running a big business either. Uh, you have a lot of uh, decisions to make. So, um, you know, a mutual understanding all the way up and down is, is the only way to go. Um, so in this hugely technological world that we're entering, um, people are more important than ever because they're the, the things behind the technology. Mm. It's really interesting what you touched on there with with um, with 
with businesses and where they're going and, and, and you touched on a couple of things and it, it does feel it's more we're moving towards more of a community feel with 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 brands with stores that it's it's it is very when we talk with the local it's, it's really about building a you know a community really around that um that we're getting everyone involved um in it and it is you're right it can be it doesn't have to be an independent it can be a multinational that has that community feel and um, but we're getting involved and we're not just expecting to put product on the shelf and for it to sell we're 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 putting it there but we're we're building the um that community feel around that in that local area it's in um be it a shopping center or high street um i I was reading your a couple of things around your book. Can you tell us um, how the kind of, I suppose, what your motivation was for writing the book? So I know that when you wrote it, um, you said that you kind of you took a little bit of time out and you were thinking about it. What was your kind of goal of writing the book or why did you want to get that book out there? Um, yeah, I'd say about five years, because none of us knew about COVID and the lockdown was coming. Um, but probably for the last five years or so, um, you know, with the wider kind of context of the environment, the supply chain, et cetera, um, was that in many companies I was working with, that there could be a different way of working. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing, being frustrated and seeing good people in particular in businesses not being able to kind of fully achieve their potential because of the way companies were structured the way the buying process worked etc so this was kind of building um and it was a i was working in trying to work in different ways and kind of give advice on different areas um and then lockdown kind of happened and personally i mean my my kind of projects literally just stopped i mean retail was in absolute shock shops were closed (laughs) you know this was the end um but anyway i I kind of sat down that was the time so i sat down for a few months and kind of wrote the book and as i was saying to louise earlier i um it felt a bit not that i've been one but it felt a bit possibly like an alcoholic or something writing about all the the bad times and the and the binges on this and that in retail uh, and then coming out with like a new new way of kind of thinking and trying to join everything up uh, that I'd seen and all the different elements. So the first part kind of poured out, which was like the life and times of the uh, essential retailer. And this whole idea, everybody was talking about essential. Of course, they were talking about it very literally. Essential st- shops stayed open non-essential ones didn't essential workers could do this non-essential so the whole uh concept of what is essential you know was was uh very much at the top of everybody's minds and taking that forwards now in terms of being a retailer there is no alternative to being essential okay you may not need clothes ultimately or fashion you may not need lots of things but there is so much competition out there you have to be essential to your customer and it could be through product but it's more likely to be through uh communication through the brand and i think if you take yes i need this product on a functional level that's one degree of being essential then there's the lifestyle 
if if I want to go out and have a great time this weekend, then I need to have this retailer behind me, knowing that they bought the best products and everybody's going to like them. But then if I do care about uh, my product and where it comes from and how it's made, then I'll form an even deeper link with a business. And I'm saying I think it's essential that this is made in a very ethical way, that people are paid a proper wage, that the materials come from uh, sustainable sources, et cetera, et cetera. So the being essential is now built from many more things just from the product. Um, so I've kind of diversified from the question a little bit there, but that's kind of the area now I kind of think I've moved into in terms of the work and that came from the book is that to make a shop, to make a product is a skill and it's great, but it's now got to be within this kind of wider context uh, of building relationships as we talked about physical ones mm-hmm. um, in terms of e-commerce that you know even now and there even more important than ever customer service uh, you know delivery times eco vehicles etc etc that everything a retailer does now is out there for the customer And so the whole brand, the whole philosophy, the whole ethos behind the business is a powerful tool that has to be used to actually create this connection with the customer. And just one final point on that is all the way through the retail, new things have come along and they've been leaders. So, for example, when shops were shops and then visual merchandising appeared, you had some retailers that suddenly did it fantastically other retailers followed got to the same level the ones that didn't fell away and every step that you've gone through in retail that is what happened but the point is your point of advantage disappears because people are very good at copying and even now when it's we've had all the all the store experience is going to be the differential that's what's going to make the difference well it is but you know it's again you can copy a store experience from best practice you Mm -hmm. can put in the shop design elements you can put in the service elements you can put in events you can put in demonstrations etc etc so for me the this now the next step the next point of differentiation advantage is about being authentic. And that's something you can't copy. So you have to be best practice in everything through that chain from buying the merchandising, visual merchandising, shop experience, customer service in an operational sense. But you now have to be authentic because that's the wider online social story that you're telling to the customer. And this whole area at the moment that we, we hear about, you know, greenwashing and who's telling the truth. How do we know where products come from? How do we know that people are happy and well paid within a business? Um, is we going to become more and more important? So great retailers will not just be about what they produce, what they sell, but it will be how they evolve into businesses that connect with the world, the local community and the wider kind of environment um and there's one fantastic example out there i don't like to name businesses um but 
There's an, a business there called Elvis and uh, Cress. Okay. And Elvis and Cress were formed by uh, two ladies who dis had a discussion with the London Fire Brigade. I don't know what the meeting was, but I'm sure it was an entertaining one. But they were talking about the hoses. What happens to the hose pipes when they've finished? Because there's a pretty sharp turnaround in hose pipes. If you're putting out fires, they have to be in good condition. And they just, uh, you know, discarded them. So this idea came from a bit for a business. They looked into the research and they found a way to turn old hose pipes into really, really nice handbags, fashion accessories, belts. And the nice thing is you can buy a belt and it will have, you know, it may have the, the fire station name as part of the design. So um, they have this really wonderful product. Um, it's all sustainable. They give, I think, certainly the last time I looked, maybe half of their profit goes back to the fire brigade retirement fund. So there's a, a kind of a, a circle that way. They have workshops where they will help people to come and make their own bags. And they work with brands like Burberry to use excess leather that would have been thrown away before to make new products. So it's a small business which came from a meeting, from a passion, completely cyclical, beautiful products, which of course is key, um, but a really, really nice story behind them. So um, I can't think there's a glimpse and okay, that's a specific business, but in terms of the principles, there is no reason why larger businesses and a lot of larger businesses, to be fair, are putting those elements together one way or another. But I say, I think that being authentic and even when you're bad, be honest. You know, we're sorry. We shouldn't have done that, you know, or we'll try to do better on this. And people will respect that. Um, so at the risk of sounding, <coughs> excuse me, kind of a bit fluffy, it is important. And it really, for many people, is moving beyond excuse me, the product that you're selling to actually the kind of wider relationship that you have with everybody. Mm, it's a really much, uh, it's, it's, it's moving towards what you said there, really a 360 degree look at um, your business as opposed to maybe just that, you know, that that linear approach that you spoke about earlier. Um, I work with a lot of um I suppose businesses and um, smaller businesses, independents and, and startups, what would be something that you would say with your experience, with your um, visual merchandising experience, what advice or tips would you give to someone that is starting out maybe their own retail business? Um, what advice would you give them to, to make their product um, stand out or maybe um, they're, they're, they've just gotten ranged in a store and they're hoping to grow that store portfolio and get into more stores? Is there any, any advice that you would give for them around that? Um, in many ways, you know, what I've just been talking about is equally applicable to them, yeah. um, is to create that kind of wider brand and be genuine. Um, you know, you've got, it is so, it, there has never been an easier time to be a retailer, easy, you know, uh, exclamation marks, uh, but there's never been so many retailers for the same reason. So yeah. if you have that, 
passion, if you have that uh, focus and you kind of show that in every sense um, across all the channels. I mean, you can go across every type of social media, you can sell online, uh, you can go into marketplaces, you can have physical shops. I think in terms of physical shops, um, there are so many opportunities now. This is one area which is changing and is going to continue. This, you know, you put a shop, the shop sits there, you have long leases, you have high rents. Mm. Okay, you know, that's the, the traditional model. You will still have some of that. But, you know, if you're new and you're starting out, test your brand, test your product, interact with lots of customers. So use, you know, pop-up shops. I think the blurring between pop-up shops and shops is just is just going to be grayness soon because, you know, there's any type of lease from a few hours to many years. But, you know, take your idea and place it in different places. If it really works, if the customer loves you in a certain place, then put a permanent shop there. But then what's a permanent shop? You know, just do it for, don't expect it will be there for 20 years, but just monitor it and just be very fluid. So if you're, old retailers had to be, but also it was the way to do it, were rigid. They're rigid in their structures, rigid in their store portfolios. But now, particularly if you're small, you can be fluid. So just, you know, with a, a physical online store portfolio, just kind of you know see what works constantly mm. you know if you if you put your feet up as a retailer and think right i've cracked it i've got my shops they're all in the right place that's where you're going to fail you've got to continually look at it and the other area um particularly when you're small and money and investment is probably not so available is to look at your assortment uh one massive change is the supply chain and we've seen the stresses that covid has caused we've seen the stresses with um fuel prices and the unreliability of uh the old-fashioned way if you like of buying product elsewhere and then transporting it across the world mm -hmm. and it's also you know expensive and you have to make the commitment up front yeah. and the inventory Moving from buying it and then having it delivered several months later can shift with new technology to a virtual assortment. Mm -hmm. And that comes back to another old kind of value, which is almost bespoke, but it's now on demand. I went to a facility in North London uh, for an open day uh, a few weeks ago. And it's not often you go and your expectations are far outweighed from what you, you thought you were going to get. And this is digital printing onto material. So I was expecting, you know, T-shirts. And this is logical, you know, you invest in black T-shirts, you have several designs. And when an order comes in to buy one, you print, you know, whichever one uh, the customer wants. And that way you minimize the risk on your inventory because you only print it when you get the order. What I saw this time was plain material with complete fashion products being printed and then cut and then sewn. Literally in an hour, you could have a floral dress printed 
on this uh, material, you could have several different designs all printed next to each other, different floral patterns, different sizes. And of course, online, or if you have a shop which acts more like a showcase than an actual kind of store of inventory, you can create visually, you can create samples. So the world thinks you have, you know, this complete kind of assortment all physically ready. Um, but you can show it visually online, as I say. But the, the main important thing is that you don't have to invest in the actual inventory until you get the order. And whether that's online or whether it's in a shop when somebody buys, you want to replace it. So your first assortment, your replenishment can all be on demand. And the benefits are as a small retailer, you don't have to invest initially in all of that product. When you get an order, you make it or you have it made. It's very quick. Uh, but also in terms of the wider picture, you know, the, the lack of there isn't that waste. We don't bet on products six months before and then find that, in fact, people wanted the blue instead of the red. So you don't have the problem with landfill and what to do with all of this excess product. You're not exporting products with all the pollution around the world because these printers can be, you know, very local. And in this particular case, the machines use very little water. Apparently, the only time they use water is when they clean the actual kind of rollers. Wow. So there are so. That was what I was like. I kept asking questions and I put this, what I saw to a few people and I said, ah, but it won't do, yeah, it does do that. No, no, it won't do, yes, it does do that. So I think for all retailers, if you're a big retailer, there's no real reason why you can't put part, part of your assortment into that kind of on demand, for example. Mm -hmm. But if you're a small retailer and it fits your model, then why not? And if you were a screw fix retailer, then what, it's not that far away. You could have a digital printer inside your shop. So again, if people want just nuts and bolts and screws to do a certain job, why have millions of packets? You know, you could actually in future just get the order and literally print certain things. So it mm -hmm. sounds in some ways a little bit kind of far-fetched, but I think this whole thing is just going to... Um, grow and grow and grow and I think it really will benefit you know small retailers who are living on a more hand-to-mouth uh, kind of situation and that allows them to create nice experiences to do all of the kind of tactile branding work as well as the design but a lot of the strain in terms of the supply chain and the investment in that you know could be kind of taken away and, and make life much easier for them. Mm, yeah it's really interesting actually and yeah I think that that whole looking at things I think what you said there was um the likes of pop-up shops which I see really work really well for people that maybe have an online store but they, they don't have that finances there to maybe open a full store um, and and have all of that money there for rent so pop-up shops definitely I think that was a really interesting one that you said there which was creating a showcase in your store for maybe some particular um you know pr product or lines that maybe you can have that on-demand piece that you said there which I think is a really really great um way of looking at that as well that 
we don't need to have all of that inventory there sitting in the store. Um, and, and from a cost perspective as well, it can save a lot of money. So, um, yeah, really interesting talk, um, Tim. I honestly could listen to your stories all day, so many of them. Um, and it's really interesting to talk to someone as well that, that sees that perspective because listening to you speaking, you not only get it at a senior level, Tim, but hearing you talk today, you actually get it from all of the, those different layers. And, and I can hear you saying, you know, when they're on the shop floor and they're getting frustrated with, you know, the, the head office or the buyers, I've seen that and I know that. And when people tell me that, I know that they're listening to the people on the shop floor <laughs> because I've come across that so many times. So it's really interesting to have someone like you see all of those um those different those different funnels, those different areas of the business, um, and not just look at it from from one one aspect, but from from every aspect. Um, it's really interesting, and um, you have a different take on things. And I've loved having you on today, and um, it's been really amazing. And for anyone that hasn't seen any of Tim's um work online, and um, definitely link in on LinkedIn. He's amazing articles on there, and he gives a lot of great information about um retail. And you can definitely learn from um, him. He's definitely a go-to in his area and an expert. And um, he has his book as well. So please um, go out, check it out. Um, you won't be disappointed. Thank you so much for coming on today, Tim. No, well, thank you for those kind words. No, it's been nice. Um, my, my family know everything already. So I'm sure they're um, happy of a different outlet for me talking about Rita. But I generally think it's a really kind of exciting time. You know, there's so many, uh, you know, opportunities for big businesses, but for, for small people as well who just have a passion, have a product, have a skill, you know, and they just want to go out there and just kind of sell it to the world, have some fun and make some money, you know. So mm. it's a really exciting time. Mm. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks a million. No, Thanks, thank everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.